Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword Program. Here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture and trying to use these Catholic radio waves to go into a little bit more detail on things that we normally otherwise could. And today, what I want to talk about is um, economics, good old Econ 101. Um, The 101 part of Econ 101, that is to say the most basic part of Econ 101, is what's it all about. And um, if we look at the study of economics, uh, the first thing that you'll find if you're ever taking an economics class, a macroeconomics class in like high school or college, is they'll talk about the fundamental problem of economics, or that is the fun, like in the sense of challenges. You know, what's the puzzle? What's the difficulty the economics is trying to solve? And um, it's trying to solve basically, the, the, the basic problem is that we have limited resources and unlimited wants. Um, there's only so much to go around and everybody always wants more. And so the big question then is, is that how are we going to determine who gets what and how much? And um, that's the thing that, you know, people have fought wars over that. And so it's a pretty important question to be able to answer. And, of course, there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of the teachings of the church, especially the, the what we call the social teachings of the church. And um, the first one, the, you know, the one that pioneered it all was Pope Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum, or On the Condition of Workers. And um, we'll, we'll refer to that. That came out on May 15, 1891, so that's quite some time ago. And then um, the other, then there's another one that came out by Pope Pius XI called Quadragesimo Anno, which means the 40th year. It means 40 years after Rerum Novarum, where um, Pope Pius XI reviewed what Leo XIII had said, and you know, kind of you know, brought that up to the the date, up to date with the times. Whenever um, he wrote his, you know, 40, 40 years after 1891, so that would have been about 1931 or so. So we'll take a look at that as the as the program um, unwinds, but. First of all, I guess what we have to figure out is, you know, how do we determine who gets what and how much? Now, in our American system, the way it happens is, if say you have someone who comes up with an idea, and this person says, okay, I have this idea, I think it's pretty clever, and I think people will buy it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to you know, rent or buy a building and buy some equipment and put it inside it and hire some people. And then we're going to start making this thing, whatever it is that I'm making. And then we're going to put them out on the market and try to sell them. And if the person does well and he sells a lot of them, then he's going to make a lot of money, obviously. And then, you know, the people that work for him, you know, everybody from the people that work on the assembly line to the, you know, the forklift driver that, you know, helps, you know, the where with the warehousing and, you know, the shipping clerk that boxes all the stuff and loads it up in trucks and ships it out. And, you know, the people that work in the office, you know, with the accounts receivable and the accounts payable and all the necessary things for business. You know, those folks are going to do all that and they'll all get paid. Um, the question at hand is how much should they get paid? How much are they paid? The, obviously, in our culture and in our system, you know, the person that has the idea and takes the risk 
gets the greater reward. You know, so, you know, the person that came up with the idea and, you know, that probably signed on the line to take out a pretty hefty loan, you know, to get the business started and everything. If the business succeeds, um, that person's going to take a bigger chunk of the of the rewards that come into the business than, you know, the forklift driver or the or the shipping clerk. Now, is that fair? Is that, you know, is that the right way to go? And it's really kind of amazing. There's a lot of people that say that, no, that's not fair. Um, there's a lot of folks that say that, well, you know, everybody should get the same. And, um, of course, that, you know, that's kind of you're going down the road to socialism and ultimately to communism. And we'll see what Pope Leo XIII has to say about that in a second. But, you know, because, you know, some folks would say, well, you know, the person that's sitting in the office kind of overseeing everything, he's not really doing anything. You know, it's the, the people on the assembly line that are doing all the work. It's the, you know, the guy driving the forklift. It's the guy that's, you know, boxing all this stuff up and, you know, so they can load it up on trucks and ship it out. They're the ones doing all the work, you know, so why shouldn't they get, you know, more pay? Well, you know, what about that? And so if you say, well, everybody should sort of kind of get the same, in Rerum Navarum, Pope Leo XIII talks about that, and he actually has a, oh, what would you call it, kind of a rather prophetic view on this. In, in paragraph 22, he says, apart from the injustice involved, in other words, he's talking about governments getting in and telling people how much they should get paid and things like that. He says, apart from the injustice involved, it is not only too evident what turmoil and disorder would obtain among all classes and what harsh and odious enslavement of citizens would result. The door would be open to mutual envy, detraction, and dissension. If incentives to ingenuity and skill in individual persons were to be abolished, the very fountains of wealth would necessarily dry up, and the equality conjured up by the socialist imagination would in reality be nothing but uniform wretchedness and meanness for one and all without distinction. Um, meanness not in the sense of being mean and nasty, meanness being mean kind of like average. Winston Churchill one time summed this up quite, quite cleverly. He said that in capitalism and free enterprise, like what we have, there is a miserable distribution of equity. And that is to say that, you know, there's the haves and the have-nots. But he says, on the other hand, with, with communism, with socialism, the misery is equitably distributed. In other words, kind of like he's saying the same thing that, that Pope Leo XIII is saying here, is that if incentives to ingenuity and skill in individual persons are abolished, the very fountains of wealth would necessarily dry up, and the equality conjured up by the socialist imagination would in reality be nothing more but uniform wretchedness and, and averageness, one and all without distinction. And so, you know, we can see that whenever we're trying to decide how, you know, these resources are going to be distributed, you know, obviously, you know, the person that drops out of high school and works at a convenience store, well, God love them, you know, that's what they did. But should they be paid the same as, you know, someone that goes to Votech and learns a very valuable skill, like learns, for example, how to, um, maybe they learn how to be a welder or they learn how to, you know, be an electrician or something like that, you know, which, which is a valuable, useful skill. Just because, you know, you might have the guy that works all day selling Slurpees at the convenience store, you know, sure, I mean, he works hard, he gets up and puts in his eight hours just like the welder does. But I think we could all agree what the welder contributes is of greater value than someone selling Slurpees. Um, the other thing is that ne really never gets talked about is that um, it's very easy for whoever, you know, in the media or whatever to go out and say, oh, look, you know, here's little Susie Hugh Jones and, you know, she's a single mom and she can't even make enough money to, you know, buy baby diapers or whatever. 
And so they'll, they'll show her, you know, in the wretched condition that she is, but they'll never come back and do a follow-up and say, let's come back 18 months, two years later and see how she's doing. Because typically in the United States, what happens is after a year and a half to two years, people get better. You know, people's condition gets better and then, you know, they tend to move up the ladder and they're better off than they were than when they, when they were first, when they were first interviewed. And so the thing of it is at any one time with any one snapshot in time, it's easy to go out and find someone that, you know, that's, you know, really they're on the skids or having kind of a rough go at it, but then, you know, come back 18 months from now and, you know, will you be able to find someone else Who's on the skids? Yeah, but the first person you found on the skids has probably worked themselves out of it. And see, that part never gets talked about, okay? And so then, you know, if, if um, when, when, again, like the Pope says, you know, whenever you, if you just take away people's incentive, the entrepreneurs will stop entrepreneuring and it won't, just won't be worth it to them, okay? And, you know, Pope Leo XIII and Winston Churchill both kind of weighed in on that. Also, you know, I think that um, when we look, for example, at the various demands that we have that are placed on just kind of what I, what I want to call corporate entities, okay? And the corporate entities, for example, the big one is the government, okay? That um, we, you know, the, the, we demand that there be this smorgasbord of government services, ranging from education to healthcare, to housing, to food, to farming subsidies, to corporate welfare, et cetera. And then we wonder why we're 20 some trillion dollars in debt. Um, the next is business. You know, we have all these demands that business should provide a living wage. We'll talk about that in the second part of the program, whatever the heck that means. And then um, we'll look at more detail in the second half of the broadcast. Then, you know, they all should say, you know, that businesses should provide health insurance and paid vacations and parental leave and daycare, safe working environment, et cetera. And again, those are things, you know, for example, that um, Pope Pius XII talked about in Quadrigesimo Anno. For example, again, in Quadragesimo Anno, 40 years after Rerum Novarum, when Pope Pius XII, he's talking about these three points to be considered. And he said, the first point is support for the worker and his family. It says, in the first place, the worker must be paid a wage sufficient to support him and his family. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing. He says, the rest of the family should also contribute to the common support in the capacity of each. And then, but he says, you know, that, you know, childhood labor is bad news. You know, that, um, that um, you shouldn't have little kids working their childhood away. But, but he goes on to say then that there should be enough that the, you know, the main breadwinner, you know, that, they ever, the, that um, it should be enough to, you know, be able to support the family. And he also then goes on to say you know, about the condition of the business. That the you know you, you can't just come over and make all kinds of demands. It says it would be unjust to demand excessive wages, which a business cannot stand without its ruin and consequent calamity to its workers. You know, I mean, we saw that some time ago. I don't know if you remember this or not. The Hostess Company, you know, the Twinkies and the Ding Dongs and the the Hostess Cupcake Company. How um the, they were it was it was back east somewhere. I forgot which state it was in, but the labor union had come in and said, you know. We need, you know, we demand this much money for our workers. And they said, well, we can't afford it. And if you demand that, we'll just close the company down. And the union called the company's bluff and the company shut the company down. And we were without Twinkies for a while. I don't know if you remember that. And um, we were without Twinkies for a while um, until another company came and bought up the, what was left of the hostess company. 
and then rehire, I don't know if they rehired the workers, but they, you know, then they got whatever it was they were going to get. So again, this idea of just kind of artificially coming in from the outside and saying we demand this much money without really taking into account the, the value of the work um, just doesn't seem to work. You know, we've seen that in the past. So, you know, um, so again, looking at these corporate entities demanding they, they take care of people, we talked about the government, you know, the next is business. Another one is the school, which is kind of a tentacle of the government, but even private schools are getting sucked into this as well. You know, right now, schools provide breakfast, lunch, and even an after-school snack and supervision, um, not only during the school year, but all summer as well. Schools are supposed to provide mental health services, specialized services to kids who come from dysfunctional homes, infant child care for the illegitimate babies, the unwed mothers attending the school, and then cater to every interest group from athletics to drama to the LGBTQRSTWXYZ groups, whatever letter they've added onto their group lately, and so on. And so again, there's this demand on corporate entities, government, business, school, you know, do, 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 give, 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 okay? Now, what about us as individuals? When you talk about, you know, the, the hoarders, I think are kind of the, sort of the pathological extreme, but it's said that a hoarder will display some of the, these favors, you know, the following behaviors or characteristics. And they hold on to stuff, insisting that it will be useful in the future, it has sentimental value, is unique or irreplaceable or just too good of a bargain to pass up. You know, the true hoarder's house would be so packed up with junk that you can't walk through the house. You might have seen those, those programs on TV. That's kind of the pathological extreme. But how many of us buy stuff we don't really need just because it was on sale or we just because we thought it was neat? And then it just ends up taking place up, up space in the garage and then we need to rent a storage unit to move some of the stuff out where it just sits. Um, you know, there's the consumerist. I one time read, it was kind of clever. Someone was talking about the consumerist. And the consumerist is, is a person who can't park his car in his garage because it's so full of stuff. And when he looks at the stuff that's packed in the garage, he doesn't see all that junk there. All he sees is the one thing he doesn't have but still wants. And again, I think, you know, that's, you know, part of, you know, we have to be, well, we have to be kind of be careful about. You know, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, at one time, gave a brilliant treatise on what he calls real versus token wealth. Real wealth is stuff you can really use. It's like a pair of shoes or a gallon of gasoline or a loaf of bread or a refrigerator or a house or a car. You know, that's real wealth. You know, it's something you can really use. Token wealth is cash, stocks, bonds, gold, silver, you know, whatever. And you might notice that with real wealth, there is kind of a natural stop mechanism on that in that, you know, I can only eat so much food and I can't eat another bite. Um, I can only pack so much junk in my garage and nothing more is gonna fit. I can only put, put so, hang so many clothes in my closet and then someone's gonna have to go because no more will go. And so again, with real wealth, there's kind of a, there's natural limits on these things. But on token wealth, there's no natural limit. You might notice that um, no one ever says, gee whiz, I think I have too much money in the bank. Oh my gosh, I think my stock portfolio is too valuable. You know, you might notice nobody ever says that. And so, you know, as, as Fulton Sheen said, you know, that when Jesus multiplied loaves and fish, everybody ate until they were satisfied. In other words, they ate until they couldn't eat anymore. Um, he said that if Jesus had instead multiplied silver and gold coins, and if he was just passing out silver and gold coins, he'd still be there to this day passing out silver and gold coins. You know, because why? Because, you know, no one would ever, no one would ever get enough. And so, you know, the, the, again, the first part of the program 
that, that I'm looking at here is what I've been, been just kind of trying to throw out on the table. I think it's kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You know, we take the we take the pieces and we put them on the table and we we flip them all. You know, so the colored sides up and then we start working on the on the borders. You know, going around and then we then we come in and start filling in the middle part. And so right now we're just kind of flipping the pieces over and and trying to you know get an idea as to what we're looking at here. And so again, my the first on the first part of the program, what I wanted to look at is again this idea of, of economics that there's limited resources and unlimited wants. And you know, so no matter how much we have, we always seem to want more. And um, but we can't do that. You know, there, there's not enough for everybody to live in a you know 20 room mansion and you know have a different car for every day of the week and closets full of clothes we can't wear and all that kind of n- that nonsense. The thing is, is then we have to decide. Well, you know, who's going to get what and who's going to get how much. And, you know, we've tried looking at that in that, you know, in free enterprise, it's basically based on the kind of work that you do. That if you have someone that does more valuable work than someone else, then the one that does more valuable work gets more. And so, again, if you have someone that's a, a doctor, you know, I mean, the, the services that a doctor renders are very valuable and very valued. They, they are valuable to everyone and they're valued by everybody that receives them. And we're willing to pay more for those then we're willing to pay for someone to mow our grass. You know, I can mow my own yard. I can't do my own appendectomy, you know, and so I'm going to pay the, the surgeon a lot more money to take my appendix out if I need it than I'm going to pay someone to mow my grass um, because not only can, you know, I can find any number of people to mow the grass, and if worse comes worse, I can mow it for myself. And so grass mowing is not as valuable as surgery is. And so, you know, people can come in all they want, and try to equalize it and say, well, but in an ideal world, the guy mowing the grass would get paid as much as the guy doing the surgery. Well, you know, maybe in some kind of an ideal world that might happen, but if you enforce that from on high, if you have government coming in and saying, the guy that mows the grass gets the same as the guy that does the brain surgeon, then the people who have the opportunity to become brain surgeons are gonna go, why should I go through all the difficulty and the, the hard work and the study and the discipline and, you know, everything that it takes to become a brain surgeon when I can make the same amount mowing grass, okay? And again, this is kind of the stuff that, you know, the, the science of economics is going to study and try to kind of make some sense out of. So, you know, the, again, the first part of the broadcast here then is just kind of looking at the, this idea of, well, how do we allocate what goes to who? How much goes to who and who gets how much and who gets what? And so, um, you know, in, in, in our free enterprise system, that's based on the value of what you bring to the table. And so, um, you know, in the next part of the program then, I'm gonna get to what I really wanna talk about, and that is, is you know, once we get all this, all this stuff laid out on the table, then there's two kind of sides of the equation. One side of the equation gets talked about an awful lot, and the other side of the equation hardly ever gets talked about, but St. Saint, Saint Paul talks about it, and St. Teresa of Avila talks about it. And, um, and so um, we're gonna talk about the, you know, again, the, the flip side, you know, that the other part of that equation that no one ever talks about. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas. I also teach a great bunch of, of sophomores at Sacred Heart um, High School. I teach them Old and New Testament um, on Monday through Friday for a couple hours a day, and that's always good fun. And you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword Program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy radio stations, Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, K 
KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and our original station where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Ed Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And we're going to take a few moments here to take a little break. And I'm here from some of our underwriters that make this program possible. So sit tight and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hey gang, we are back. I am Father Fred Gatchett and you are tuned into the Double-Ed Sword program here on the Fine Family of Divine Mercy Catholic Radio Stations, our original station, KVDM 88.1 Hayes, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, and KMDG 105.7 Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And on this particular installment of Double-Edged Sword, we've been talking about um, economics and um, how the, the 101 of Econ 101 that if you sign up for a basic macroeconomics class, um, the first thing they're going to teach you is that um, the fundamental problem or the, the, the puzzle or the challenge that economics tries to solve is the fact that we have limited resources and unlimited wants. That no matter how much we have, we always want more. And so how do we determine who gets what? Um, because not everybody deserves the same. Um, some people say we do. You know, it's amazing, especially with young people. Um, well, I'll be teaching them and I'll say, well, you know, what if you have somebody that takes it upon themselves to start a business and, you know, buy a piece of land and put up a building on it and load it up with equipment and start stamping out hubcaps or something. And um, and so, you know, you have to buy the machine that stamps out the hubcaps and you got to pay someone to run the machine to stamp out the hubcaps and you got to pay somebody else to box them up and haul them off into the warehouse and another guy, you know, to get to run the forklift to load them up into the trucks and ship them out and people in the office to, you know, ex, you know to um, take the payments for the hubcaps and other ones to, you know, pay out the, you know, the expenses, you know, to pay for the electricity for running the factory and, you know, maintenance on the machines and the, the wages for the employees and so on. And so you have all that and then you got the guy that masterminded the whole thing. You know, should they all get paid the same? And some folks say they should. Um, some folks say, well, look, you know, the guy driving the forklift, he's out there working in that hot, sweaty warehouse while the boss is sitting in his air-conditioned office. Well, you know, that may be true, but if the boss had never come up with the idea and run the risk, signing his name on the loan to um, put up the building and buy the equipment, start stamping out hubcaps, none of those other people would have jobs. And so, you know, that's one of the things in, in at least in American in the American system that we've figured out is that, you know, the, the person that takes all the risks, you know, they get a bigger chunk of the rewards. And some folks might not think that's fair, but again, as we saw in Rerum Navarum from um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth from 1891, you know, Pope Leo the Thirteenth basically said that um, he says um, that if if you if had this you know equality kind of forced from from the outside, um, you can see that he is no no fan of, of of socialism. He says the door would be open to mutual envy, detraction, dissension, and if incentives to ingenuity and skill and individual persons were to be abolished, the very fountains of wealth would necessarily dry up, and the equality conjured by the socialist imagination would in reality be, be nothing but uniform wretchedness and meanness for one and all without distinction. 
You know, in other words, you know, there would there would be no no ingenuity, no you know people with skills to come up with clever clever things to you know make and sell and so on. And so again, the the socialist ideal of everybody being the same and getting the same. You know, the Pope says it's just, you know, it, it, it's a pipe dream. It, it goes against human nature. It goes against the natural law. And so that's just not going to work. But the thing is, is that, again, later on, after, um, after 40 years, after Rerum Novarum, which was kind of a revolutionary thing, Pope um, Pius XI wrote um, Quadragesimo Anno, which is on the 40th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. And he talks about some of the things that, you know, in the world of work and labor and business and things like that. And he says, one of the things he says is, the worker must be paid a wage sufficient to support him and his family. That's called the, you know, the living wage, the so-called living wage. Now, this is kind of what I want to get to. We did all the first part of the program to get to this. My question is, what is a living wage? What exactly is a living wage? Because you'll notice we don't really have a standard to say where, where we would say, okay, you know, the system, whatever, whatever you want to call it, the corporate entity, you know, the government, the school, the church, um, you know, the business, whatever, you know, has done its part. And once we get to that point, no one, you know, if, if you get to a point, you know, along this continuum somehow, you can no longer complain and make demands. The system has taken care of you, and now you either be content with what you have or you work harder to get more, all right? Um, the problem is we don't have a point at which we can say that we can all agree on that, you've, that, we've, that we've achieved that. Let's see if we can flesh that out a little bit more because I know it sounds a little bit foggy right now. But the, but the point is, is like if you have someone that's belly aching all over the cable news, you know, it's not fair. I don't have X, Y, or Z. Well, what's X, Y, or Z? I'll give you a ridiculous example. Years and years ago, back in the 1980s, I was getting ready to go to work. And some of you might remember the old Phil Donahue show. Um, Phil Donahue was an absolute moron, but he had this afternoon show and he'd get a bunch of angry people in the studio audience and he would stir them all up and get them going. And um, they had a, the, the two sides were, there was this, a bunch of gals that were, you know, kind of middle class, you know, came from hard work in middle class America. And there was a, a couple other gals that were a couple of ne'er-do-wells, basically. And, um, and, and they were fighting back and forth, you know, the, the ne'er-do-wells were saying, well, you know, you guys have and we don't have and it's not fair. And the, and the, the middle class gals were saying, well, it's because you don't work hard, you know. My husband and I work very hard to get what we get, you know, and the, and the fight was on. But this one gal, just in a moment of exasperation, she just pipes up and says, all I know is that last year my daughter had to go to the prom in a used prom dress. And I want to know what the government's going to do about that. Okay, so we, we've gotten to a point now where the taxpayer is on the hook to buy prom dresses. Okay, so when the Pope says pay a living wage, you know, that's part of Catholic social teaching is that, you know, the, the people, you know, have a right to a, to a living wage. Does a living wage include a prom dress? Does the living wage include a cell phone? Does the living wage include, you know, um, the most up-to-date, lightning-fast internet access? Does it include internet access at all? And see, that's the problem. See, I maintain, this is Father Fred Gatcha talking, this isn't the Pope, this isn't the official teaching of the church, this is just me, so you can take it for what it is. But my point is, is that we do not have a common understanding as to when we could say 
look, lady, you know, you have a place to live. You've got shoes on your feet. You've got clean water to drink. You know, you can, you can access the public education system and you can go up as high as you want and no one's stopping you. Um, but no, you know, the, the community, the taxpayer, you know, the, 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 the corporate entity at large is not on the hook to buy your daughter a prom dress. I mean, that's just irrational. That's, un, that's, that's, un, that's, that's, um, that's unrealistic. It's not reasonable. And so, you know, the question at hand is, is then how, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we engage in this conversation lacking this standard? I mean, I, we could, you could throw out all kinds of things. You know, maybe you got mom and dad and, say, four kids, all right? And say, you know, dad works and makes, I'm just going to pull some numbers out of the air, you know, he's not bringing home all kinds of tons of money, but maybe he's making, say, $50,000 a year for this family of six, him and his wife and, and his four kids. And I say four or five, let's say four. You know, so you got six people living in this house. Now, maybe they rent a house. They don't own their home. They're renting a house and, you know, they, they have food on the table. You know, they're able to buy the food they need. Once in a while, mom goes to Goodwill and, and gets secondhand clothes, especially play clothes for the kids because, you know, how kids are pretty hard on clothes. And so, you know, they might have a, each one of the kids has a nicer set of clothes, you know, to go to church in or, you know, to go to nicer gatherings and so on. But, you know, the rest of the clothes, most of them, they just buy them secondhand at Goodwill. Now, someone would sit back, you look at that and you say, okay, well, by virtue of the fact that they live in the community, you know, they have clean water, you know, sewer, electricity, um, you know, they have their house that they live in. Um, it's not their own house. They're renting the house, but it's a clean house. They got food in the refrigerator and they can get to the doctor when they need to get to the doctor. You know, they, they're, they're not eating T-bone steaks every night. You know, sometimes it's, you know, tuna casserole and, you know, having, you know, kind of simple, simple diet and everything, but they're not hungry and, you know, things are kind of taken care of. If we look at that, could we say that that family's needs has been taken care of? And if they want more, then it's going to be up to them to work longer, work harder, or, you know, maybe mom has to go out and get a job or whatever the case might be. And see, that's my, that's my, my point is that we don't have that as a definite, we don't have that, we don't have that as a, as a definition and we don't have that point defined. We don't know at which point we can say, no, this family, you know, their, their basic needs are taken care of and they do not have the right to complain. You know, they don't, they don't have the right to come to the church, to come to the rectory door and say, well, you know, we need more money for, you know, whatever. I mean, talk to any priest, some of the stuff that comes to the door. You know, I, I had a gal call me up a while back and she goes, well, I need money for gas because I have my, my granddaughter is in Kansas City and the birthday party is tomorrow and I have her gift bought, but I don't have enough money for gas. And I said, really? You know, I didn't realize that the church would be on the hook to pay for gas to get you to a birthday party. I mean, I can see if someone needed gas to get to work, but to get to a birthday party, but see again, you know, someone listening to this program might say, well, it's her granddaughter. Of course you should help her out. Someone else would say, are you kidding? You know, using church money to buy gasoline to go to a birthday party? No, that is not good stewardship. Why is there the argument? Because we do not have this common definition. We don't have a, a common understanding among all of us as to at what point has society as a corporate body done its part 
And beyond that, if you want beyond that, you're just going to have to get it yourself. You know, and, and again, you know, there are a zillion variables with this. You know, you could have someone, for example, that has, you know, maybe they, they've got some kind of a mental illness. You know, maybe they've, they've got bipolar disorder or they're chronically depressed or whatever. And it just makes it hard or maybe even impossible for them to hold down a, a full-time job. Uh, maybe they can just handle part-time. Maybe they can't handle a job at all. Well, you know, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And so, you know, sometimes you're going to have folks that simply can't work and can't do it. And we will be, you know, uh, it'll be, we'll be obligated to help these folks out somehow. But to me, that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy to understand. What what I'm looking at is, you know, should, you know, do people have a right to have a cell phone? You know, and, and then if someone says, well, of course, in our day and age, a cell phone is a necessity. How can you get a job? How can you hold a job? Your boss has to be able to call you. Okay, fine. So now we decide everybody has a right to have a cell phone. Well, then... If everybody has a right to have a cell phone, then you have to get them that cell phone somehow. How are we going to pay for that? Are we going to tax everybody's cell phones, have a cell phone tax so everybody else gets a cell phone? And then, you know, when they get that cell phone, well, is a flip phone good enough or does it have to be a smartphone? You see what I'm saying? So the difficulty with this is, is that there is no defined point. There is no common understanding. There is no common agreement as to, as to what point you know, the society as a corporate body has done its part. And so when we have these nebulous terms like living wage, well, what's a living wage? We just talked about this. You know, if, if, if someone, does living wage include making a payment on a house to where after a certain amount of time you own the home? Actually, Catholic social teaching seems to point in that direction. And when you look, when you look at the writings of Leo XIII and Pius XI, they're both saying that, you know, that the, the frugal worker should be able to put some money aside to where they're able to buy something and invest in kind of in their own equity. For the most part, in the United States, that would mean a house. Um, and in other cultures, it might mean, you know, having being able to buy some land. So you have your own little piece of land that you can farm yourself rather than farming someone else's land. And then you'll build up a certain amount of wealth. Um, that's part of Catholic social teaching is, you know, our right to private property and our right to be able to amass a certain amount of wealth. Now, again, the certain amount, how much? That's the big question. And as long as we don't have a common consensus, that might be redundant. As long as we don't have a consensus among ourselves as to how much is enough, then you've always got someone that's going to say, well, that's not fair. They have more than I do. And, um, and, and then, then you're just, you're on all kinds of, it's like trying to hang jello on a nail. You know, well, they have more, there's lots of people who have more than I do, and I've got more than lots of other people. So how do we know? Well, I think what we do is we look to the sure and the certain words of scripture. Good old sacred scripture will help us out every time. Um, before we get to that, we look at St. Teresa of Avila. St. Teresa had a, had a pretty good observation. She says, our body has this defect that the more it is provided with care and comforts, the more needs and desires it finds. And Teresa is usually in very, very clever language here. Um, this is worth looking at almost every word point for point. She said, our body has the defect that the more it is provided with care and comforts, okay? That is to say, you know, back in the days, you know, when I was growing up as a little kid, and I'm not complaining for a minute that I had some kind of a deprived childhood, but um, growing up, we never had air conditioning. It just got hot in the summer. The house was warm in the winter. That was nice. Um, but during the summertime, we didn't have air conditioning. It just got hot. 
and you opened up the windows and, and you know, you just kind of got used to it. And um, the thing it is, is now, you know, with air conditioning everywhere during, you know, during the summertime, not only do we have to have air conditioning, but it can't be too cold. Or, you know, the air conditioning is on, but it's not really quite cool enough. And, oh, but I was in this store and it was, it was the air, they were running the air conditioning so hard, it was just so cold in there. But, well, okay, so go outside. How do you like the heat? Well, I don't like the heat either, okay? The more the body is provided with care and comforts, the more needs and desires it finds, okay? And again, I think her use of the term finds is, um, is, is really, you know, insightful there in that the more we have, the more we will find, we will, the more we'll go looking for, you know, more than what, we, than what we think we need to have. Again, you know, you look at the whole cell phone mess. I mean, my favorite little cell phone I ever had was my Motorola Razor. That was a handy little phone, a little flip phone. Um, you could flip it open and make telephone calls with it and everything. Well, then the thing burned up and I couldn't get a new one. And um, so now I've got, I've got my smartphone and um, it's not really a telephone. It's a very sophisticated handheld computer. And one of the apps is a phone. Um, it does all sorts of other things. It takes pictures. And in fact, I am, I am recording this installment of Double-Edged Sword on my phone. And I will put it down to Dropbox and send it to Danetta at the radio station. And she'll edit it and get it all ready to go, ready to air it. Um, but the point is, is that, um, you know, at what point do we say, well, no, if you have a flip phone and you can call in to work, you know, that's it. You don't, you, you don't really get any more. You don't deserve any more. If you want more, if you want to buy the latest iPhone with all the cameras and gizmos and whatever else in it, then get an extra part-time job and, and, and work for it and pay for it. But again, when, when you read the social teachings of the church, especially if you read Rerum Navarum and Quadrigesimo Anno, the popes do kind of talk about this a little bit, but not very much, not as much as I think they should. And, um, and again, that is... At what point, you know, how do we define, how do we come to a common definition, a commonly accepted definition as to how much is enough? And we don't have that because, again, as St. Teresa says, our body has the defect that the more that is provided with care and comforts, the more needs and desires it finds. And, um, you know, we, again, we can just look at that, you know, the, the lifestyles of the rich and stupid. You know, when you look at someone that's just amassed, you know, they got the, the giant mansion and the, you know, the giant walk-in closet. Remember old Imelda Marcos and her 10,000 pairs of shoes, you know, and so on. I mean, this is just goofy. And it just get, it kind of gets to the point where, you know, at, you know, how much is enough? So, again, the whole question of this living wage, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a difficult thing because someone's a definition of a living wage might be, hey, you know, I, I rent this one-bedroom apartment and I, you know, I don't make very much, and, but I have enough to buy my food and to pet my dog and go out for a walk in the evening, and I'm a pretty happy camper. That's my living wage. The next person might come in and say, this guy lives like a pauper. You know, I don't, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to, you know, have a, a nice house and a two-car garage and go on vacations every year and, you know, so on and so forth. That's my definition of a living wage. And see, as long as we don't have that definition, as long as we don't know at what point society or the corporate body has done its part and you want any more than that, you're on the hook for it yourself. As long as we don't have that, then there's going to be this constant, you know, wringing of hands and, you know, crying and whining. And, of course, the politicians take advantage of this big time. Um, you look at the way that politicians play the politics of envy. That person there has more than you do. And it's not fair that that person has more than you do. Well, maybe it is. 
but it's not fair that person has more than you do. And if you vote for me, I'll take some of his stuff from him and give it to you. You know, that's the way, you know, the politics of envy works. And is that really, you know, a good thing? I think that we can probably agree that it's not. And again, when you, when you look at what um, Leo XIII said, when he talked about the, the disaster that socialism brings into the world, because socialism is just the front door to communism. And remember what he said, apart from the injustice involved, it is only too evident what turmoil and disorder would obtain among all classes and what a harsh and odious enslavement of citizens would result. The door would be open to mutual envy, detraction, and dissension. Isn't that what goes on when you see all these riots and stuff going on all over the place? Mutual envy, detraction, and dissension? Doesn't that really kind of describe the hostile atmosphere in which we find ourselves, everybody wringing their hands and going, you know, gee, why can't we learn how to get along? Why can't we just agree to disagree and go from there? Why do we have to have, you know, all these, all these you know, anger and fighting and riots in the streets and so on? Well, again, I think it goes back to the fact that we don't have a common definition as to what it means when, you know, the, 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 you know, the society, the school, the business, the government, whatever, has done its part, and then the rest of it is on you if you want more. I think having something, you know, having that definition would be, would be a great help. Now, St. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, I mean, he says this, Indeed, religion with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and just we shall be able to take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we shall be content with that. Those who want to be rich are falling in temptation and into a trap into many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils, and some people in their desire for it have strayed from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. St. Paul says an awful lot in those four or five verses there. You know, when he says, he says, we brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of it. Um, as is once, you know, very, you know, very pithily put, um, there's no ball hitches on hearses. You know, you never see a hearse dragging a U-Haul trailer. Um, the hearse goes out to the cemetery with just a dead person in it. And then, you know, St. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we shall be content with that. He said, that's enough. See, Paul has this idea of how much enough is enough. He says, those who want to be rich are falling into temptation and into a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge them into ruin and destruction. And again, I think that goes back to what the Pope was saying. And you look at the, the turmoil that's on a lot of our streets. I mean, doesn't that really kind of boil down to a bunch of people saying, they have more than I do and I don't like it. Well, but you haven't really been able to demonstrate that they're having more than you do came, you know, at your cost, that, that, that somehow they, that, like they took it from you somehow. Um, the, the, no one's really been able to demonstrate that. And then St. Paul knows here, this is one part where St. Paul gets, he gets misquoted a lot. You know, people say money is the root of all evil. That's not true. Money in and of itself is nothing. A hundred dollar bill sitting on the desk is nothing. It's just sitting there. It's not doing anything. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. It's amoral. But St. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. And some people in their desire for it have destroyed themselves. Um, because again, what's the problem with money? Go back to the first part of the program with Fulton Sheen. There is no automatic stop mechanism by which we would say, okay, I have enough money, I don't need any more. No one ever says, I have too much money in, my, in the bank. 
No one ever says my stock portfolio is too valuable. Or, you know, back in the old days when money was silver and gold, you know, no one ever said, you know, I've got too much silver and gold in my stock house, in my storehouse, you know. And so, you know, the, the problem with money is there's no natural stop mechanism on it. And since there's no natural stop mechanism, no matter how much we have, we will always want to acquire more. I mean, for some folks, you know, that play the stock markets and things like that, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to, go ahead. But um, the money just becomes a way of keeping score. You know, some people might, you know, look at, you know, $300 and think, oh my gosh, $300, you know, I could, you know, buy a couple new tires with that or something. You know, a lot of folks, especially, you know, again, people that are speculatively playing the stock market and so on, it's not about what they can buy with the money. It's just a way of keeping score. Look, I made more money. And, um, and, and again, there, there's no natural stop mechanism for it. And so the sky's the limit. You know, people could just kind of, you know, start, you know, seeking, you know, more and more money just for the sake of having more and more. But again, you know, the, the bottom line of this treatise is, I believe that any discussion about people's wants and needs must necessarily include a substantial consideration as to what we really need and what we really have a right to. And at what point we have to be reminded that given my particular state in life, I have enough. And I have to learn to be content with what I have and quit complaining. You know, it's easy, you know, um, people who know me know that I really like going to the lake. And it would really be fun to have a lake home. Boy, would I love to have a lake home. That would be fun. But the thing of it is, lakefront property is expensive. And so for me to bellyache, it's not fair because I can't have a lake home. It's like, well, then go out and get another job. You know, you're not going to make that much money being a priest, that's for sure. But that's okay. Um, I knew that signing up. And so I'm, I'm not complaining about what I make. But, but it would be irrational of me. It would be unreasonable of me to, you know, decry some kind of injustice because I can't afford to put down, you know, $400,000 for a nice home out at the lake. Well, you know, that's not consistent. That's not reasonable with my lifestyle, with my calling in life. Now, you know, if I was, you know, had a different job and a different career and a different vocation, you know, then maybe I could afford to do that. But, but I don't have any right to complain because I can't, because I can't afford a lake home. It's just not reasonable. Okay. And so again, I, you know, what I would like to see, you know, more, more stuff, you know, like if, if the popes want to write more and more about, you know, the rights of workers and wages and things like that, that's all well and good. But again, I think the flip side of it, like what St. Paul says, is that we have to be, we also have to talk about number one, how much is enough? At what point has the corporate body done its part? You know, we, we could say in the United States, you know, we, the taxpayer have provided you know, public schools, you can go to school, it won't cost you anything. You know, after you get out of high school, you can go to Votech, you can learn how to become a registered nurse, you can learn how to become a carpenter, you can learn how to become a welder, you can learn how to fix diesel engines. There's all kinds of things you can do that will pay you quite well. And, um, and so, you know, you really don't have any room to complain. You know, but the thing of it is, is if you do that, and you go out and you become, you know, that diesel engine mechanic, and diesel engine mechanics do pretty well, um, and then, but then all of a sudden, your lifestyle has eaten up your income as a diesel engine mechanic. Well, then if you're sitting there saying, well, it's not fair 
because I can, I've got four kids and I cannot afford to buy every kid you know, their own car with their own insurance policy and their own cell phone with their own cell phone contract. Well, you know, that's too bad. You know, I don't, I don't know that we're really on the, the rest of the society is on, a ho- on the hook to be able to provide all those things for you. Just because, you know, another person, you know, at school or somebody else that you know has a job where they can provide all those things for their kids, well, good for them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have the, some kind of a moral right to the same thing, you know, because we don't. So, again, I think that, you know, we, there really needs to be a discussion as to, you know, what are our, you know, our, our reasonable wants and our needs, you know, I remember her, her, hearing one time somebody said, especially in the United States, most of us would have to say that we have everything we need and most of what we want. And so therefore, you know, where, where, what room do we have to complain? So again, you know, if, if anything, if I got anybody to think about anything on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, it would hopefully be, you know, to, you know, while, you know, people are always saying, you know, well, there ought to be, you know, I have a right to, you know, there needs to be more, you know, programs for children or more things for the elderly or, you know, higher wages or better insurance and da 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 Well and good. But the other part of the discussion that never gets talked about is, and I think, again, there must be a substantial consideration as to what people really need because we don't really have a standard for that. Um, that's a very, that's a moving target. What do we really need? What do we really have a right to? And at what point do we just need to be reminded that, you know, given my particular state in life, you know, whether I, you know, became a laborer or a management person or a, you know, a professional, like an attorney or an accountant or a physician or something like that, you know, given my state in life, you know, at what point do we say, well, I have enough. I have to be content with what I have and just quit complaining. So, again, hopefully that made a little bit of sense. I am, um, we're kind of getting ready to wind down this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Again, I am Father Fred Gatchett, and I'm the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector at Sacred Heart Cathedral here in Salina, Kansas, as well as a part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High for my sophomores, where I teach Old and New Testament. And you have been tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations. Um, our original station, KVDM 88.1 Hayes, um, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, and KMDG 105.7 Hayes. And um, we always invite you, if you want, to call the, the station or to log on to our website at DVMercy. That's V as in Victor, DVMercy.com www.dvmercy.com or to call the station at 725-61-4110 if you want to call with a with an idea for another another installment of double-edged sword if you have a a pro an idea for a sub subject matter for the program um we can you know do the investigation homework and maybe put something together that you might be interested in also you again check out our website where there are archived installments of double-edged sword and also of one body both of which are locally produced programs and so you can uh, go look at um, the current, the most recent um, installments of these programs and then also um, previous episodes. Also, if you look on, on the website, there's the donate button. And um, we do encourage you to support um, these Catholic radio um, waves and the, the way we get the, get the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ out there um, using radio. It's a very effective means. And we found that in the various communities where we have Catholic radio. And um, so we certainly want to encourage people to get on board and um, help us keep these things going. 
So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. You've been tuned to the Double-Edged Sword program here on Divine Mercy Catholic Radio. And we thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you the the next time. In the meantime, goodbye and God bless.